Let's go ahead and open up with prayer. Father, thank you for this time to be together. It's such a, a blessing uh, to be able to open up the Word of God together and to study it together and to discuss it. And I pray that you would uh, bless me as I uh, speak from your Word here and bless our discussion and uh, help us to understand what um, Scripture means, what it says. And uh, we pray you'd help us apply it to our lives, to the way we think about everything. And we just thank you so much for your church and the world and for uh, the forward progress of the gospel. And we pray uh, that you would convict the world around us of, of sin and draw people to the Lord Jesus. And we pray that your church would be uh, filled with uh, worshipers uh, who persevere through the trials uh, in a way that glorifies Christ and who enjoy the blessings and the days of peace in a way that glorifies Christ. But help us always to trust you, um, whatever our lot, whatever is going on, uh, help us to uh, trust in you fully and to have joy, uh, knowing that our sins are forgiven, that they were nailed to the cross, we bear them no more, and we thank you for the joy that we can have in watching our Savior in action, listening to uh, having this, this window into his mind as he prayed there in the Garden of Gethsemane and um, what was going through his, his mind and heart and what he, what he asked for in prayer help us understand it and to treasure it in our hearts and to treasure john 18 and 19 and 20 his his crucifixion his trial his his death help us to to see in that um our own salvation we pray this in jesus's wonderful name amen okay we're on john chapter 17 Uh, we left off um verse 15 john 17 verse 15 so here we are kind of in the right in the middle of the heart of jesus's high priestly prayer, and last time we kind of took a detour from this off into the whole idea of the Melchizedek priesthood, remember that? And uh, we looked at Hebrews chapter 7, and one thing to remember, when you read the book of Hebrews, one of the things that like, that really helped me long ago understand it, the, the burden of the book is really to show the superiority of the priestly work of Christ and of the office of Christ as high priest to everything that came before him. That's why it brings up angels. Remember in the opening chapter it says, to which of the angels did he ever say, um, you are my son today, I have begotten you. And um, he never said the same kinds of things to any of the Aaronic or Levitical priests either. It's the superiority of Jesus. Because what was the temptation for a lot of Hebrew Christians and Jewish Christians back then? What was the temptation for them? What was that? Yes. And what else? Yeah, and, and to go back to the, the old way of, of worship and to, and to mix the Old Testament into the New. And the point there that, that he's making is that what, what Jesus represents is really the fulfillment of all that. Why would we go back to types and shadows when the fulfillment in reality is here now? Okay, And yet it was a temptation. I mean, picture what it was like to be a, a Jewish Christian, and now <laughs> the temple's obsolete. And you don't need priests, and you don't need sacrifices, you don't need to keep all these feasts and festivals. I mean, it was a whole new world. But that's what we're seeing here in John 17, is uh, Jesus functioning as our high priest here in this prayer. So let's look at verse, um, we'll back up one verse to verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I and not of the world. Remember, we looked at that last time. What, what does he mean when he says the world has hated them because they are not of the world? What does that mean? Not all at once. What they think and believe doesn't come from the world system. It comes from the word of God. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it makes them 
basically their very existence challenges the existence of the other people and what they think, mm-hmm. which is why people react with, in, with hate. Yes. If, if you're a true Christian, yeah. if, you're, if you're a serious-minded one, if you're willing to embrace the antithesis with everything else out there in the world. And you remember I've mentioned to you, and this is something that you see all the way through Scripture and all the way through biblical history, all the way through church history, one of Satan's most effective tools to um, make the church less effective is to erase the antithesis with unbelief and with false doctrine, to make people become more accommodating to everything. And that always leads to a, a disaster. It really does. And so that's not, I'm not saying you've got to throw down and fight over everything. Um, but you do need to understand you know, the, the core doctrines of the faith, and those have to be non-essentials, like who God is, who Jesus Christ is, how we're saved, and things like that. Those are non-negotiables. Okay? They're, they're non-negotiables, and you, you can't compromise on those issues. And that's going to, I mean, in this day and age we live in, that's going to make you weird. Um, if you're not willing to do that. Um, so, so please remember that. Jesus said, um, the world hates them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And then verse 15, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Now, what's he asking there? He's asking of his father about his disciples. I mean, this is the grand mission. These are the people he came to save and to bring to heaven forever. He's praying of his father I pray that you would not take them out of the world. What does he mean? That's right. If you're going to be salt and light, um, you've got to be in the midst of the darkness so you can shine your light there. And you've got to be up against things that are rotting and to, to be the salt that preserves it, right? We've got to be in the world but not of it, okay? So he's praying, don't take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. What's he mean by that? From Satan, but how, what's, he, what's he asking of his father? Don't, I want them to stay in the world, but keep them from the evil one. What, what, is, what does he mean by that? What are we surrounded by constantly? Evil, evil which is what to us? It's kind of a, a source of temptation. temptation and uh, there's always the, the, the forces wanting to draw us back into, into evil, right? Okay, we, we come out of that. We, we come to know Christ and we're saved. Uh, have you ever noticed all of your sins came with you into the Christian life and now you're at war with all this stuff and you've got all this stuff you've got to do and that, that's you got to, stuff you've got to work on and everything else, okay? And, you know, one thing I've noticed and I've, when we preached through Romans years ago, um, I did a sermon. You know, I, I preach sermons not just to you. I preach them to myself. And uh, as much as I don't particularly like to listen to myself talk, once in a while, I'll go back and, and I'll look at my own sermons and think, that one, I think that one was kind of insightful. And I'll go listen to myself, and I'm listening to myself going, yeah, yeah, amen, that's right. Um, but, but there's peace. You have peace with God, but that starts a war with what? With sin and with the world, with the devil, with self. Mm-hmm. So he's praying of his father. Keep them from the evil one. Keep them from all the sources of sin and, and evil and everything else. But keep them in the world so they can be a light there. Okay? All right, verse 16. Hey, yes, sir. Question. Is it okay to ask questions? Sure, absolutely. Would you say this is uh, uh, maybe parallel with what we pray in the Lord's Prayer about keeping us from temptation, keeping us from evil? Some, some, some parts of it, I can't remember this one in Matthew, actually speaks about it. Yes. Yeah, there's not a doubt about it. Yeah. Yep. 
Yeah, we now obviously what we mean. He's pray, he's praying for them. He's not praying for himself to be kept from the evil one. When we pray, we're asking God to, to deliver us from temptation and from sin and from the devil. Um, and there's a couple ways you could translate that. What is it? Paneros. It can be a substantival adjective. So it could be the evil one, or it could be deliver us from evil in general. It's probably really capturing both. Yeah, but from evil in general, from the evil of our own hearts, our own temptations the evil of the world around us, that's a temptation to us, but also from the devil himself. Okay? Now, has anyone here figured out how to tell the difference between temptations that arise from your heart and temptations that are direct assaults of Satan? Okay. I haven't either. Um, even the, like, the best Puritan writers and guys that have written on that, like dealing with temptation, how do you tell the difference? How do you know if something is a direct onslaught of, of the devil himself or if something came from your own heart? Once in a while, though, do you ever feel like, wow, where did that come from? A temptation? I've wondered about things like that. Like, man, that didn't, there was no precursor to that at all. That felt like a dart from hell or something that came into my mind. So however you want to look at it, we, we have to be in prayer that God would deliver us from our temptations. Okay, remember what the Shorter Catechism says about what are we praying for? What, what do we ask when we pray? Um, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We're praying that God would either keep us from temptation or when we are tempted, that he would give us the strength to resist it. Okay? But it's always better if we're just not tempted at all, right? So. Is there any truth um, to, I have heard a preacher say that, that often for a believer, God makes sure that, that the weakness of man isn't there at a time when they would encounter a temptation that's where they have a weakness, where basically opportunity and temptation don't overlap as much. Well, there's 1 Corinthians 10:13 that no, no temptation has, has uh, um, come upon you except such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, mm-hmm. but with the temptation will provide the means of escape that you may be able to bear under it. So, yeah. That's a powerful passage because that is saying that I, I never can say it was too tempting or I just couldn't say no to this or that. No, we always can. We always have the ability. Doesn't that just make sin even worse for us, though, when we do it? God, God gave you the way out. He gave you the... And so it's like it's... I've heard Reformed theologians preach on that. It's like it just make, it makes sin even worse. Like, we don't fall into sin. We walk right You walk right into it, yeah. Eyes wide open. Yeah. We're, we are that bad. We are that bad. Which is why you got to keep your guard up. And uh, when I'm, I'm preaching, I'm, I'm going to be gone Sunday morning. Ryan's going to preach, but I'll be here. I'm supposed to be here Sunday night. Uh, I'm excited to preach. It's going to be on some of that kind of stuff. Because you have to keep your guard up and watch for temptation all the time. So, But just remember what Jesus is praying here. Our personal holiness is really important to him. He really, he really is praying that we would be godly. That we would be holy in the way we live. Okay, look at verse um, 16. Here, still praying, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Okay, so the primary means of our sanctification, of our growth in grace, is the, is the very word of God. Okay, so he's praying there, Lord, you know, God, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So the more contact we have with our Bibles, with God's Word, just there's no substitute for it. There's just no substitute for you with your Bible, you know, reading through it slowly, carefully, 
and taking in what it says, you know, uh, sometimes you can do it in big chunks. Other times it's just going to be a little bit at a time. And, uh, but you need to have that constant contact with God's word because that's going to renew the way we think about everything. And that's the main thing. We've got to change the way we think about stuff. We've got to change the way we look at the world. Okay, and so the word of God is the means of that. Okay, verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. So there you have the idea, really, we are Christ's ambassadors. Just as Jesus came into the world, now that he's about to finish his work and he's going to die on the cross, he's going to be dead for three days, rise from the grave. And then when, before he ascends into heaven, what does he do with his disciples? He eventually sends them out after Pentecost, a little time elapses. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, then they are sent out to preach the gospel to everyone else. So he's going to send them out to the world. Verse 19, and for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Okay, there's, there's so, many, so many things you could meditate on and like every, every single thing he's saying here. Um, for their sakes, I sanctify myself. It, it was all for us. It wasn't for him. It was for us that he sanctified himself and that they also may be sanctified by the truth. What is the word sanctified mean? Set apart, yeah. Set apart, made, made progressively more holy. Okay, that's what sanctification is. Jesus didn't need to be made more holy. No, he did not. But he was prepared for the job that's right oh yes he, he was not progressively made more holy yeah. and, and pe- people will ask well, what does it mean he grew in stature you know and in favor and wisdom with, with God and man well I mean he, he, he grew up you know he, he was a, a little boy and then he was a teenager he was you know in his late teens his 20s so yeah he grew in, in wisdom and stature it's not he didn't he didn't become holy from being wicked he he just grew in wisdom and stature okay it's not like he was acquiring more holiness or anything like that okay um verse 20 here's this is real encouraging i do not pray for these alone but also for those who will believe in me through their word so who's that a prayer for us yeah yeah it's an amazing thing you know jesus uh has a personal devotion to an attachment to his sheep. He knows them all by name. Remember that in John chapter 10, the good shepherd knows his sheep and his sheep know him and he knows them all by name and they won't listen to the voice of strangers and um, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. It's very personal. Okay. And, and I'll tell you, I think it's a really dangerous teaching, this idea of what's called the provisionist perspective. Y'all heard of this? It's a very dominant perspective in the Southern Baptist Convention. There's a, a group of people that are, are teaching. They, they hate Reformed theology with such a passion that they're becoming more and more explicit that Jesus did not actually save anybody. He made a provision to make it possible for every man, woman, and child on earth to be saved. Now, immediately, doesn't that raise a lot of questions for you? Like, here's my question. What was the provision um, God made for the Egyptian armies he buried in the Red Sea? What, what was the provision for them? But then this raises all sorts of other questions. If you're going to say that God's love and the opportunity is equal for everyone, then you get, start getting into, well, people can come to know Christ by looking at butterflies and looking at the stars and 
You don't actually even need the Bible. You, you, don't, you don't need to hear about Jesus. You know who said that explicitly towards the end of his life? Billy Graham. Yeah. Mother Teresa, too. Yeah, she, Mother. He's trying to make Hindus into better Hindus. Right, right. And so that, that's where that always goes. If you depersonalize the work of Christ, the end result of that ultimately will end up, when it's logically pushed to its conclusion, you'll end up with universalism. Everybody goes to heaven. Okay, it's very serious. So when he says, I am praying for those who will believe in me through their word, this is a personal doctrine. Election, God's predestining work, is the ultimate demonstration of his love. Remember question 20 of the Shorter Catechism. Did God leave all mankind to perish in the state of sin and misery? God having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity, elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a redeemer. They are elected individually by name, given by the Father to the Son, and he is commissioned to go save them. And everything he's doing here, I, I sanctify myself that they may be truly sanctified. I'm not praying for the world, but for those that you gave me. I'm praying for those that will believe in me through their word. It's deeply personal. Okay, I remember coming to finally see that and like finally getting rid of this, uh, all of my animosity at the idea that God was sovereign and just thinking, wow, he actually loved me before the foundation of the world. And, and just kind of sitting in my study, this is like 25 years ago, and thinking, why? Why would he love me? There's nothing to love here. I'm such a rotten scoundrel of a man. Why? And you just think, well, it glorifies his grace. He's pleased to do that. I love that the beginning of that, que- that answer, question 20. God having, out of his mere good pleasure, elected some to everlasting life. Okay, it's a glorious doctrine. It's a wonderful doctrine. And um, I wanted to tell you a little, little anecdote. The very first Reformed church I ever went to was a PCA church in um, Hudson, Ohio. And there was a preacher there named Zachary Eswine. Zach Eswine was one of the best preachers I've ever heard. This guy preached 12 sermons on John 17, verse 2, on one verse. I give eternal life to as many as you've given him. Like, and I would sit and listen to this guy preach. It was, like a, it was so encouraging. And there was an elderly woman that had been born and raised covenant child and, and was discipled in the Reformed faith her whole life. And I was just chatting with her after a service and was like, I'm just, just loving this this. Uh, preaching on this passage I'm, I'm learning so much about God's sovereignty and how how much more glorious the love of God is and she's like yeah I never had an issue it's like an old gray-haired woman never had any problem at all with this idea of God's unconditional election it's such a precious doctrine to know that God loved me like that for my whole life and I don't understand why anybody would ever have a problem with it and I, I just thought wow it's so encouraging it's so it's a wonderful truth. It should be a source of, of great strength and encouragement. And it's an, it's an anchor when things are going bad for you. It really is. So look at that again. Look at verse 20. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they all may be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be one in us that the world may believe that you sent me. Now, when he is praying that his disciples would be one, what does he mean by that? Before you answer that, think about this. In the ancient creed, the oldest creed that we, that we confess sometimes together, the Apostles' Creed, 
I believe in blank, holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. One. How many churches are there in the whole world? One. What, do we, what does that mean? That's right. All ethnicities, all nations. Mm-hmm. All denominational lines. Okay. All that, that truly trust in Christ alone are part of the one body of Christ in the world. Okay. And there, this, is, this passage is very often misused. You need to understand how this is misused by people today. People will say, I've heard, um, actually, former Reformed ministers say, like, based on this passage and also in Galatians, as if table fellowship is what the gospel is all about. I long for the day when we can say with Paul, because Paul said, in Christ there is neither you know, male nor female, barbarian, Scythian, Jew, Gentile, slave nor free. This guy says, one day that it will come about where we'll say that there is neither Methodist nor Catholic, Presbyterian nor Baptist, Eastern Orthodox nor this, liberal nor conservative. What's wrong with that? A bunch of those aren't Christians. Yeah. A whole bunch of them are, are not Christians. Okay? Listen, unity, the oneness of Christ's disciples, is based on the true gospel. Unity that's not based on truth is not unity. Okay? It's not an externalized, well, we all said something nice about Jesus. You've got to get the gospel right. You've got to be trusting only in the Lord Jesus to be part of that one body. Okay? And when we become believers, we're baptized in the Spirit into the one body of Christ. Okay? So don't, don't let people use this passage to push an ecumenical agenda. Do you all understand what the word ecumenical means? It's putting aside all doctrinal differences and just uniting together. Okay, I'm sorry? Kumbaya. And singing Kumbaya, yes. <laughs> and let's all hold hands and sing Kumbaya. Okay, so just remember, when, when Jesus prayed that his disciples would be one, that is fulfilled in the baptism of the Holy Spirit into the one body of Christ. This is not a wish. This is not Jesus going, boy, I sure do hope it works out this way. It's, there is a oneness to his disciples across denominational lines, no matter where they live, or I think... In heaven, there'll be people that came from pretty wild, real different looking churches, and yet they heard the gospel and they trusted in Christ alone. Okay, and there'll be probably be a lot of surprises. A lot of folks we thought would be there that might not be there. Okay, so just remember the the issue is not so much the label; it's are you trusting in the finished work of Christ for your salvation? It really is that basic, and it really is that simple. That's the main issue. Okay, you can get everything else right in the Christian faith but if you get that wrong if you're trusting in something other than christ or something alongside of christ paul says christ will be of no benefit to you okay all right so look at that again verse 21 that they all may be one as you father are in me and i in you that they also may be one in us that the world may believe that you sent me and the glory which you gave me i have given them that they may be one just as we are I in them, and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> yeah, that's like, it just should make the hair stand up in the background. Um, so the love that God has for us is the same love he has for his own son, because where are we? In him, we're, we're hidden in Christ, yeah. Isn't that glorious? Paul, that passage in Colossians 3, those opening verses, that is just one of the greatest passages in the Bible. 
where he says, If then you were raised with Christ, set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And then he says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Why, why is that? Because Jesus prayed for it here. He prayed that that would be the case. Okay, verse 24. Um, I, this is a passage of scripture. Um, <laughs> I got to tell you another little, little anecdote. Um, there was a, the mother of a, of a congregant years ago was dying, and she was a believer. And she was unconscious at that point, and I didn't, I didn't think she could hear me. And I read this verse to, uh, thinking she didn't hear me, and just prayed, and I went home. And found out later she actually could hear me. She did hear it. I was shocked by that, because I thought she was, like, knocking on death's door. I thought she was, like, might even have already passed on. But um, the lady whose daughter, her daughter who goes to church here told me, no, she heard that. She heard that verse. <laughs> so I was like, wow. So here it is, verse 24. I love this. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. So why will we go to heaven and behold the glory of Christ? Because it was a prayer request that he gave his father. I desire that those that you gave me would be with me where I am. So whatever doubts you have, well, the incarnate son of God prayed for it. So it's going to happen. That they may behold my glory. So are you excited to behold the glory of the Lord Jesus one day? I can't wait. Not only because it'll be the, the greatest thing ever, but because you get to forget all the hardship from here. That they, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. And of course, who else does he love before the foundation of the world? All of his elect people, his chosen ones, his church. Verse 25. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Okay, so that's, isn't that glorious stuff? It's a wonderful passage of scripture. Um, what a blessing that John wrote this stuff down, you know, before he uh, left the world. And remember, when we first started reading through John's gospel, remember what I emphasized to you about why John includes the material that he does? Most scholars agree he's purposely trying not to duplicate everything that's already in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He's assuming you already know about all of it. So this is, for the most part, new material. It's stuff that uh, had not been written down yet. So what a blessing we get a window into what Jesus prayed for before he was crucified. So always remember, this is a real gold mine. You know, um, I've told people, when I've gone through the hardest seasons of life, John 17, through the end of the book is just a, a, a place in scripture. I've just gone and read it slowly. Now look at verse or chapter 18. Here you have the betrayal, the arrest, and, and all this good stuff. So look at verse one here. Let's see how much time. Okay, good. Verse one. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops, 
and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. (laughs) There could have been 300 to 600 people in this group. Because in in the Gospels, it's described as a cohort. A cohort was around 600 troops. And this is a big group of people. And they fell down when he said that. I am he. And Ju- or, uh, verse 7. And he asked them again, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. That the saying might be fulfilled which you spoke. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. And Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Why do you think Peter all of a sudden got so brave? He just saw 600 people. (laughs) Yeah, just do the I am thing again. Yeah, (laughs) just say that again. So, I mean, he's ready to take on a whole cohort of troops. I mean, he pulls out the sword. Let's go to, he's going to war. It's pretty remarkable that he, he did that. And he cut off his ear. You realize he wasn't aiming for his ear, right? The guy saw him coming and moved and took his ear off. (laughs) I love it. We know from the uh, Gospels that um, Jesus picks his ear up and puts it back on him. Of course, it was Dr. Luke that told us. Yeah, the doctor. Yeah, that's right. The Gospel writer that that mentions that part. That he (laughs) picked his ear up and put it back on. I mean, wouldn't you love to see all this? Like, how amazing that would have been to see. You know, you, you see goofy stuff in, in the movies or whatever. Like, you wonder, did a light, like, zoom, like that? Did anything, or was it just kind of like, there's no blood, or no, no nothing, just boom, there it is, it's back on his head. And everyone standing there must have just been in shock. But I love what Jesus says to him. Um, verse 11, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Isn't that glorious? What did he pray in the Garden of Gethsemane in the Synoptic Gospels? Abba, Father, if it's possible, what? Let this cup pass from me. And he's saying, shall I not drink the cup my Father has given me? Okay, and what's in this cup? He's got to drink. The wrath of God, the justice that's coming against, that should have come against all his people, all these people that he just prayed for, that he's praying, that he's going to sanctify and save, and that are going to behold his glory and, and be with him where he is. You know, remember John 17 is at the end of John, you know, 13, 14, 15, 16, that whole block where he washes his disciples' feet. And remember the opening um, verses of John 14? Don't be troubled. Remember, he tells them, I'm leaving. You can't, you can't follow me. And they're like, what? And then he says, don't worry. I'm going to prepare a place for you. In my father's house are many mansions. And um, if it were not so, I would have told you. I will, behold, I will come and get you. I'm going to come and bring you to this place. I mean, those are promises. Those are those are the very anchor of our soul. Those are the things we've got to make sure our, our children understand. Is That's what you hold fast to, no matter what, is, is that stuff. Okay, so he tells Peter, put your sword away. I gotta drink. I've got to do this. Peter still doesn't understand what's really happening here. Verse 12. 
Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, verse 15, and so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers who had made a fire of coal stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. And the high priest asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet, and in secret I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. Now, what is Jesus constantly exposing here? What are these guys really doing? Well, what's really going on here? What are they, what's the, the end game that they're trying to do here? Yeah, they want him to die. They had decided, whatever it takes for this guy to get killed, we're going to do it. And so, really, what they're doing here, like all the commentaries when I'm reading the stuff on Luke, is this is totally illegal. You weren't allowed to have a court meeting at night like this. It was not allowed. It had to be in daylight. You had to have witnesses. You had to let people defend themselves. And there had to be real accusations. Remember, they, they paid people to lie about them, and their testimonies didn't agree, all, all that stuff. So Jesus, by asking them key questions, is exposing the illegality of all this again and again. Okay, so verse 22, when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, do you answer the high priest like that? Is that not soul stirring to think about? Someone slapped him. Wow. Verse 23, Jesus answered him, if I've spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Verse 25. Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied again, and immediately a rooster crowed. So there you have the, the denial and the rooster crows, and what did the what did the other gospels record? What did Peter do after he heard the rooster? Yeah, he wept bitterly. I mean, it's it's rare that you know you see someone do that. Someone weeps bitterly. I mean, it's it's unusual. But how humiliating for him! Not only that he did the very thing that he swore he would never do that night. He he ended up doing it but it's recorded in all four gospels too so every time peter went to church and they were reading through the gospels i mean this is highlighted one of one of his closest friends and apostles who has miracle working power sinned 
like this. It says that Jesus looked at him when he... Yeah, and one of them, yeah, right as he did it, that somehow as he was being transferred through the courtyard, it's like they made eye contact. Is that, isn't that just horrifying to think about, like how horrible that would have been for Peter? Like, I will never deny you. I will never do that. They may all flake out. I will never do it. And then he does it three times. Three times. Yes, I'm pre- I, as I recall, I'm pretty sure it is. John, isn't it John or... Yeah. Does that yeah. like they knew John was one of Jesus' disciples? Yes. Because they say, are you not also? Yes. Yeah, also. Yep. Because they recognize the other guy too. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that would kind of make it that much worse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's a big, it's a big deal that Peter did this. You know, we kind of, we can kind of chuckle about it and we can kind of like, yeah, that's really pretty bad. But... After Jesus rose from the dead, though, there's a very interesting line, and I can't recall. I can't recall if it's in John or if it's in one of the synoptics where Jesus tells um, the ladies, "Go tell my disciples and Peter." <laughs> it's almost like he's still demoted for a while. Like he'll be restored, you know, before I leave the earth. But it's almost like he's not in that pack anymore for a while. He's he's in timeout from being a disciple. But that's a stirring line there. Go tell my disciples and Peter that I'm alive. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so right, the rooster crows and Peter is called up short there. Verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium, and it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the Praetorium. What, what is the Praetorium? Anyone know? It's the governor's house. I'm, yeah, I'm sorry? The governor's yeah, house. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's, like the, it's where the, gover, the governor lived. I love this. So, so all of Jesus' enemies, these, like, these pious you know, Pharisees and scribes and everybody, look at verse 28 there this, after it says, they themselves did not go into the Praetorium lest they should be defiled. Yeah, these guys are plotting the greatest crime and the greatest evil that's ever happened. The murder of the Son of God. But they won't go into a Gentile's house because that, that might defile them. Isn't that right? That's called straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel, swallowing a herd of camels. Okay? That's, a, that's such a, that little phrase. They did not enter the praetorium lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Verse 29 Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. In other words, what? Trust us. Yeah. (laughs) They haven't thought that far ahead yet. Isn't that amazing? They don't know what to say. It's like, oh, what what were we going to say again about him? Like, there there is no reason for him to be there. And if, if you're Pilate, I mean, think about this. Your, your day's being disturbed. It's like, okay, well, what did he do? And their answer is, well, if he weren't an evildoer, we wouldn't have delivered him up to you. You can just see the look like Pilate just being so irritated by that. Like, what kind of answer is that? So, verse 31. Pilate said to them, you take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. 
weigh the significance of that. I mean, they said it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spoke. What did Jesus say over and over again? I will be crucified. From the moment Peter confesses that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, accessory of Philippi, it's in all three synoptic gospels. From that moment, he starts telling them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed, he's going to be scourged, he's going to be crucified. And of course, what do the disciples think when they hear that? No, you're not. And Peter especially. No, that will never happen to you. Okay, And yet he does it, repeatedly tells them, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to be crucified. So why did, these, why did his enemies say, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death? So that he would die at the hands of the Romans. Because who's in control of every detail here? God is, the triune God. Think of all the mixed motives. Pilate is just irritated at the whole situation. The Pharisees and the scribes, they've got their agenda. The disciples, they're clueless. They don't understand really even what's going on. They eventually run and go into hiding. And yet, in the midst of all this chaos is the perfect plan of God being executed in every minute detail. Every little bit of it is under his sovereign control. And if you can stomach it, you should go listen to the debate that John O'Rourke and I did against those provisionist guys. Because I asked them directly, so are you saying, listening to their opening statement, listening to their comments, I asked one of them, I said, it sounds like you're saying, but you surely aren't saying this. It sounds like you're saying it's possible that Pilate could have released Jesus and let him go. Oh yeah, it's possible. Is it possible that Pilate might have decided to let him go? The whole universe would cease to exist if that had happened. Okay? That, that, that is nigh unto blasphemy. I remember John telling me, we've got to be nice to these guys. <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean? He said, they said if we, if we say that we don't think that they're Christians, they're, they're not going to talk to us. I said, well, how bad is their theology? Well, one of them's an open theist. I said, oh, you're kidding me. <laughs> so I'm like sitting there, like everything in me just wants to pounce. Like, are you seriously saying this? I also asked one of them, is it possible that Peter might have denied Jesus twice instead of three times? And he said, yeah, that was his best guess. <laughs> I said, I don't, under, I don't recognize the, the deity, this finite God you guys believe in. It's not the God I worship. I have no idea who he is to you. But Jesus is put to death by the Romans because that's what he said was going to happen to him. And there's no possible way that it would have failed to happen. Okay? So Pilate's like, I don't want anything to do with this. You judge him according to your law. Well, we can't put anyone to death. Verse 33, then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? Jesus answered, you rightly say that I am a king. For this cause I was born and for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Isn't that a glorious statement? Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Verse 38. Pilate said to him, what is truth? You can almost hear him smirking, like, what are you talking about? Yeah, what was, what was 
was found on the John Rylands papyrus, that little scrap of John that was found. That's on Is that, that verse, really? Yeah. Wow, wow. Is that P52? Is that the mm -hmm. little tiny fragment? It's the oldest piece of the New Testament that exists, right? Right. Is that is Pilate saying that? That's, I I didn't actually know it was that passage. That's that's interesting. I think it's cool that that's what God uh, preserved for people to see. Uh, okay, verse th the rest of verse thirty eight. And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, "I find no fault in him at all." Okay, now if you put all the gospels together, I believe it's five times. Five times Pilate goes out to the people and proclaims what. He's innocent. This guy's done anything wrong. And which makes it all the more heinous that eventually he does what? He, he orders his death. Okay, and we, and we know why he does that. He was getting scared that there was going to be a riot. And of course, the Romans really didn't like that. And I find no fault in him at all, he says. Verse 39. But you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Now, why do you think Pilate would throw that idea out there to him? Why not just release him? He wants it, he wants it to seem like it was their call, right? He's sure that they are going to ask for Jesus. And yet the chief priests and the scribes are able to do what? They're able to persuade the people, ask for Barabbas instead. And I think that Pilate must have been really shocked by that. It just shows you how fickle people were. Because when Jesus comes into town a week ago, what were they all doing? Praising him, palms, and Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in. Everyone's all excited here. The miracle worker is, is here. But very quickly, the whole crowd turns on him. You know, I heard one preacher say the same crowd that was saying, hail him, hail him, at the end of the week is saying, nail him, nail him. You know, very, people were fickle, easily um, had their minds changed and then verse 40 then they all cried again saying not this man but barabbas now barabbas was a robber and so we'll we'll stop there um and pick it up at, at chapter 19 next time but does anyone have any thoughts or questions comments the robber word is that nice face which is more like a mother there's always implied violence okay really word, so barabbas wasn't just a pickpocket yeah. He was a violent. He was probably a killer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, let's close in prayer then. Father, thank you for the the delights and truths and wonders of your holy word. And may we be a people that um, read our English Bibles every day and, and soak in um, every page of what you have spoken to us from beginning to end and help us to be diligent in our study of, of Holy Scripture so that our minds really are transformed, so that we are strengthened against temptation, uh, so that we are what Jesus prayed we would be, and that is sanctified and set apart by the truth. Help us remember our, we have sinful hearts that are always here with us that will lead us astray or cause us to to devalue the truth, and we pray you would help us to be an encouragement to one another um, and to honor uh, our Savior who did all these things, who suffered all these things, as we're going to see in the opening verse of the next chapter, that Pilate had Jesus scourged. And that was just one of the most horrifically painful ordeals that anyone could possibly imagine. And yet he endured it all. And by those stripes, uh, we are healed. And the justice 
do to us fell on him. May we live our lives for this one that died for us and rose again. And may we remember that when he prayed, he wasn't praying for a provision. He was praying for people, people he knew by name that were given to him by his father as a love gift before time began. What a privilege it is to be one of your worshipers. Help us remember those promises. Jesus prayed, Father, I desire that those whom you have given me would be with me where I am, that they would behold my glory. Help us to rest upon that anchor uh, when life is difficult. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all.